Amen. And we will turn to Isaiah 33 to hear those words of life now. In this passage, remember that the Assyrian Empire, the mightiest empire in the world, the greatest army on the face of the earth, who had already conquered every surrounding nation, the Assyrian Empire was moving in on Jerusalem. They've attacked Judah. Um, Judah has paid them tribute, but they've turned around and attacked them anyway. And so this is a chapter where finally God's people turn and cry out to the Lord, and the Lord answers graciously. Isaiah 33, this is the word of God. Ah, you destroyer, who yourself have not been destroyed. You traitor, whom none has betrayed. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. O Lord, be gracious to us, we wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. At the tumultuous noise, peoples flee. When you lift yourself up, nations are scattered, and your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers, as locusts leap, it is leapt upon. The Lord is exalted For he dwells on high, he will fill Zion with justice and righteousness, and he will be the stability of your times, abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. Behold, their heroes cry in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly, the highways lie waste, the traveler ceases, covenants are broken, cities are despised, there is no regard for man, the land mourns and languishes, Lebanon is confounded and withers away, Sharon is like a desert, and Bashan and Carmel shake off their leaves, now I will arise, says the Lord, now I will lift myself up, now I will be exalted. You conceive chaff, you give birth to stubble. Your breath is a fire that will consume you. And the peoples will be as if burned to lime, like thorns cut down that are burned in the fire. Here, you who are far off what I have done, And you who are near, acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly who despises the gain of oppressions, who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil, he will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortresses of rocks. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land 
that stretches afar. Your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? You will see no more the insolent people, the people of an obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. Behold Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there, the Lord in majesty will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams where no galley with oars can go nor majestic ship can pass for the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Your cords hang loose. They cannot hold the mast firm in its place or keep the sail spread out. Then prey and spoil in abundance will be divided. Even the lame will take the prey. And no inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. Father in heaven, this is a glorious chapter. It's not an easy chapter. But it is such a glorious chapter. Please help us to understand it. And please write its truth on our hearts that it might change the way we see the world, the way we see ourselves, the way we think, and the way we live. That we might see Jesus and live by faith in hope of that day when we will see him not with eyes of faith, but with eyes of resurrected glorified bodies that will never be sick and never struggle with sin ever again. Secure that hope to us and secure us to that hope through your word today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you're a parent, you've likely heard, I do it myself. Or as my niece used to say, I'll bomber foss. <laughs> it's the cry of the heart of the independent toddler, and sometimes it leads to disaster. And I wonder. If we ever outgrow this stubborn desire to figure it out and make it work all by ourselves without any help. In America, we celebrate that ideal. But so often as adults, we carry such anxiety that we need large bottles of antacids or even prescription medication because we insist that we must figure it out and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and make it work our way. But Jesus says, come unto me, all you who weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, do not be anxious 
saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. And God says in 1 Peter 5, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. But what do we do? <laughs> we think we can handle it. That's the opposite of humbling ourselves. We think we'll figure it out and we lose sleep Sometimes we even compromise our obedience in order to manage things our way rather than honestly and earnestly seek the Lord and his kingdom first. By the time we come to Isaiah 33, Isaiah has been through years of faithful ministry as a prophet, and he has watched God's people face danger, real danger, but do so in a way that was just absolutely faithless. The first danger they faced was that Israel, the northern part of the kingdom of God that was a separate nation, and Syria, they were joining in an alliance to come against Judah. Any, either one of them was stronger than Judah by themselves, and here they are teaming up, and, and they freak out about it. And in the early chapters of Isaiah, we have Isaiah going to the king and saying, the Lord is going to deliver you, you just need to wait and be patient. And the king says, yeah, that sounds like nice religious talk, and he sends off tribute to Assyria, this rising empire to the far north. It's even stronger than Syria and Israel. And paying that tribute, hoping that they're going to come and wipe out Syria, which they do, and wipe out Israel, which they do. But they don't stop there because, you know, large growing empires don't tend to stop. So they swept down and knocked out the Philistines, and then they circled around and they started picking off some of the cities of Judah, and they panicked, and they said, oh, no. We invited these people in. Now look what they're doing. What are we going to do? And so they turn to Egypt, and they decide, if we have the horses and chariots of Egypt, and they send a big tribute caravan to Egypt, and Isaiah says, no, 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 you need to trust the Lord. You need to trust the Lord. He's like, yeah, okay, religious guy. You keep your religious talk. There's a real army out there. We need real help, so we're going to get the chariots and the horsemen from Egypt. And the chariots and the horsemen from Egypt, guess what? They don't show up. Surprise. The world's not actually helpful. And now the Assyrians are closing in. And in 2 Kings 18, we read Hezekiah has now become king. And Hezekiah is a more righteous king. And he's trying to lead the people back to the Lord. But they're still trying to deal with this Assyrian threat. And Hezekiah says, well, what do I need to do? I'll just, I'll just tell the king we're very, very sorry that we tried to hire the Egyptians against you. Uh, please forgive us and we'll pay whatever tribute you impose upon us. And so there was a tribute imposed by the king of Assyria, and they paid the tribute as best they could. In fact, they even go so far as to strip the gold covering off of the temple to make it into gold to pay the amount that the Assyrian king asked for. And the Assyrian king, like some mafia boss, says, oh, thank you very much. I appreciate that, and kept right on coming. And now, finally, in chapter 33, right, how many years, right, 
If it feels like we've been in Isaiah for a long time, Isaiah was dealing with this in real life over years through different kings. Finally, in verse 2, we get to a prayer from the people of God to the Lord asking for his help directly. And what we really have in Isaiah 33 is God's response to his people beginning to really turn to him under Hezekiah's leadership, having run out of all options, right? Isn't that what we do? When all else fails, pray. Say, well, I can't do anything else, but I guess I can pray. (laughs) No, we don't do that, do we? Yeah. So God answers, and we actually get his answer first in verse 1. Verse 1 is spoken to the Assyrians. Ah, you destroyer, who yourself have not been destroyed. You traitor, whom none has betrayed. When you've ceased to destroy, you'll be destroyed. And when you've finished betraying, they will betray you. Assyria has betrayed Judah by taking their tribute and attacking them anyway. There's another reference later in the chapter to, uh, to the taking of the tribute in verse 18. Your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the tower? So there were envoys of peace. They're referenced also in this passage. There were envoys of peace who went out and carried the tribute, and the tribute was counted out. And then, thank you very much. See you later. All right, guys, keep going. Where is that guy? Well, when the Lord is done with him, he's going to be wiped out. So that's the first thing that God says, is that when the Assyrians are done with their treachery and betrayal, they themselves are going to be betrayed. Not only will the Lord wipe them out, but eventually they're going to be betrayed by a a city that they think is under their control, Babylon, who's going to rise up and overthrow them. But we have the prayer of the people of God in verse 2. O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. This verse is a great prayer to pray, by the way. If you want to pray the Bible back to God, take Isaiah 33, 2 and memorize it. Wouldn't take you that long to memorize and make it a regular part of your prayer life. It's a great prayer. It's for the people of Judah to pray. Probably Isaiah wrote it for them under God's inspiration. Maybe Hezekiah ensured that the people would actually pray. We don't know for sure, but what we do see here is the people of God are finally turning from the world for their help and resources, and they're looking to the Lord himself. Oh, Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, the great I am. They're turning to him because he's their covenant God, and he is self-sufficient, he is all-sufficient, and he is unchanging and unfailing. And so they turn to him. And what do they ask for? They ask for grace. Be gracious to us. They know. They know what they've done. One of the dumbest things we do when we do turn to God in prayer, listen, one of the dumbest things we do when we do turn to God in prayer is try to bargain with him. We say, oh, Lord, if you'll get me through this, I promise you that I will. You've blown it. You know you have. God knows it better than you do. Just go to them and say, oh, Lord, be gracious. 
We need your grace. We need your undeserved favor and kindness. We need your goodness that we don't deserve. We wait for you. Psalm 46 tells us, be still and know that I am God. And that be still literally means cease striving. Stop running around trying to figure everything out. Stop it and know that I am God. We wait for you. Not, I do it myself. But we wait for you. What do we wait for? Two things here. Be our arm every morning, and that arm should probably be translated as strength. Be our strength every morning. Our salvation in the time of trouble. Notice that God is our strength every morning. Every morning. Did you wake up this morning? Kids, did you wake up this morning? You're here, right? Who woke you up this morning? Kids, who woke you up this morning? Who gave you the strength to open your eyes and to sit up in bed and to get onto your feet and walk to the kitchen where your mom probably had breakfast waiting for you? Who did that for you? Not you. God. Do we forget that? God wakes us up every morning. Years ago, I've shared this story, I don't know, so many times, but it's been very helpful to me in my life. Years ago, I heard J.I. Packer, who was a great theologian, and he shared that it had been his practice for many years. He would always keep a pair of slippers on the side of his bed that he got out before he went into bed. these older British gentlemen, right? Picture that. So he would sit up on the edge of his bed. He would put his feet into his slippers. And before he would stand up, he would pray this beautiful Trinitarian prayer that he, he prayed the same prayer every morning about thanking God. And I thought, well, I don't know if I'm going to memorize and say the same prayer every morning, but what a great pattern. So get up, put your feet on the floor, thank God. You woke me up this morning. You're my strength every morning. You're my God. I'm your child. Thank you. Help me to live this day by your strength and for your glory. It's a simple prayer. It's a short prayer. It's usually less than a minute. Just get up and go. But that's the first thing I do every morning. I've done it for years, and it really, really helps. God is our strength every morning before He is our salvation in time of trouble. And he is our salvation in time of trouble, but we need to depend on him every day and not just on our bad days. Then look at verses 5 and 6. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. He will be the stability of your times, abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. One of the major themes of this chapter, and really of all scripture, is the exaltation of God, the rising up of God. Verse 3 says, when you lift yourself up, all nations are scattered. And in verse 10, the Lord answers his people's prayer, and he says, now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. We have a triple repetition of what he's going to do. He's going to get up He's going to lift himself up. He's going to move. What does that mean? 
Was God asleep? Is he waking up now like we wake up in the morning? No, it's, it's, it's a, a reference to when God shows up and shows himself clearly to be God. God is always God, and God is always in control, but there are times when he raises up above the noise of life, and he shows himself very clearly to be God, and he's recognized as God. When we pray and we sing, be exalted, O God, we are praying, we are singing that God would be recognized as God, that he would show himself to be God, and that people would honor him as God. It, the people pray this because they know that when God is exalted, he's going to fill Zion with righteousness and justice, and he'll be the stability of his people, and his people will receive an abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge, and the fear of the Lord is, in fact, Zion's treasure. By this time, Zion's given away all their treasure. They got no more treasure left. They gave it all away. They even stripped the gold off the walls and the pillars. They gave it all away. They had nothing. It was their last desperate effort. But what's the truth? The truth is that the fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. When they fear the Lord, they have everything they need. Now, in the immediate context of Isaiah, God's going to answer this question in a powerful way. I've talked about this the whole time we've been going through Isaiah, and we're leading up to it. We'll be there in a few weeks. But when God answers, he's going to answer with one angel of the Lord who's going to come into the camp of the Assyrian army dramatically. And 185,000 Assyrian soldiers will be slaughtered in one night. And look back on verses 3 and 4 that I just skipped over. At the tumultuous noise, peoples flee. When you lift yourself up, nations are scattered, and your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers. As locusts leap, it is leapt upon. What does that mean? Well, they lost all their treasure. But when they turn to the Lord, and the Lord is their treasure, what happens when 185,000 Assyrian soldiers are dead and all the rest of the Assyrian army flees for their lives in utter terror? Guess what they leave behind? Lots and lots of treasure. And so people in Jerusalem thought, we've spent our last penny trying to protect ourselves from these people, and here they come anyway. Lord, be gracious to us. Lord, lift yourself up. Lord, show yourself to be God. And God answers, and God shows up, and the next day there's more money than they paid in tribute scattered among the fallen bodies and the dead horses for them to just be able to go out, go out like locusts clearing out a field, go out like... Uh, like this time of year, sometimes you'll see the geese settle in the farmer's field that's been cleared out, and they're just having a good time. It's an all-you-can-eat buffet, right? That's how they would have been with that spoil. But ultimately, this is pointing us beyond this temporary deliverance because we can ask the question of, well, when, when and where is God ultimately exalted? When and where is God ultimately lifted up and shown to be God? Jesus spoke of it. He said, I, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And John, in John 12, where Jesus says that, in case we miss it, he tells us, by this he was speaking about the cross. 
in the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, think about it, Jesus was lifted up on the cross to die, and then he was lifted up from the grave in life, and then he was lifted up to the heavens to be seated at the right hand of God. Did you notice in verse 10, it's a triple rising? Now I will arise, now I will lift myself up, now I will be exalted. Mostly that's for emphasis. But isn't it interesting that Christ was lifted up on the cross to die for our sins, he was lifted up from death to conquer death forever, and he was lifted up to the right hand of God the Father to be seated there to make intercession for us forever. He was triply exalted. Not to just defeat an Assyrian army, because I got news for you, the 185,000 were destroyed by an angel of the Lord, and that's great, and they went away, but 100 years later, Babylon comes, and they don't go away. And they come back, and they come back, and they come back, until Jerusalem is laid waste. And the temple is no more, and the people of God are carried off into exile for 70 years. So it is a temporary deliverance. What we need is a permanent deliverance. Whatever it is that you're facing right now, you're facing some situation. Maybe it's cancer. Maybe it's joblessness. Maybe it's loneliness. Maybe it's a troubled marriage. Maybe it's a wayward child. Maybe it's just doubt of your salvation. Whatever it is you're wrestling with, whatever it is you're facing right now, the Lord will bring you through that in his time and in his way, and you can trust him. You can look to him. But guess what? That's just a temporary matter. It will be resolved, and if you keep living, something else will come. Right? What we need is for God to show up and deliver us in a permanent way from the biggest problems we face. And that's what he does in Jesus Christ. He comes and delivers us not from an Assyrian army, but he comes and delivers us from sin, death, Satan, hell, judgment, and not temporarily, but forever, forever. And it was a rising up, it was an exaltation, it was a victory that was more glorious and more costly and much more permanent than just wiping out the Assyrian army in a night. Jesus has ascended into heaven as the captain of our salvation. He has won the victory. He has put our enemies to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. And through Jesus, ultimately, is where we get justice and righteousness and salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. Look at those words in verses 5 and 6. Justice. Where was justice satisfied? Ultimately, at the cross, where all of our sins were paid for. The punishment was poured out on Christ. It's what we confessed earlier in the service, that beautiful section from the Belgic Confession. God, who is perfectly merciful and also very just, sent the Son to assume the nature in which the disobedience had been committed. 
in order to bear in it the punishment of sin by his most bitter passion and death. So God made known his justice toward his son who was charged with our sin, and he poured out his goodness and mercy on us who are guilty and worthy of damnation, giving to us his son to die by a most perfect love and raising him to life for our justification in order that by him we may have immortality and eternal life. Jesus is our righteousness, Jesus is our justice, and Jesus is our salvation, our wisdom, and our knowledge. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, 1 Corinthians tells us, and we have him. We have it permanently. Verses 7 to 12, as God is answering their prayer initially, so 2 to 6 is really their prayer up to God, and then 7 to 12, God is beginning to answer their prayer. 7 to 9, he's preparing to answer by surveying the landscape. And then in 10 through 12, he actually answers. So 7 to 9 is a survey. God is looking around and seeing. Not that he didn't know before, but he wants them to know that he sees. He wants them to know that he sees them. He knows what they're going through. Behold, their heroes cry in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. The highways lay waste. The traveler ceases. Covenants are broken. Cities are despised. There's no regard for man. The land mourns and languishes. Lebanon is confounded and withers away. That's the great forests of Lebanon where the great trees grow. Sharon, which is normally a place of abundant uh, growth, is like a desert. Bashan and Carmel, where again you would have flourishing um, agriculture. They, they shake off their leaves. In other words, it's all barren. The Lord is surveying the desolation of the land that's brought about by the Assyrian invasion, and he's moved with compassion to act for his people. We see this in Jesus, too, as Jesus answers the cry of God's people over the years, and he comes into the world. What does he do? Before he goes to the cross, what does Jesus do? He walks among the people, and he surveys their situation. The Gospels tell us with this very strong word in Greek about being deeply, deeply moved. Um, it's the word that's used at Lazarus's tomb when, when Lazarus is dead. We, hear, we read famously that Jesus wept, but we also uh, read that he was moved with compassion. Well, several times in the Gospels, we're told Jesus was moved with compassion when he saw the people who were like sheep without a shepherd. He was moved with compassion when he saw the people helpless. He looked upon his people whom he loved, and he saw them leaderless, clueless, harassed. Their appointed spiritual leaders were not profiting the people, but instead they were profiting off of the people. They weren't ministering to them, but they were only interested in being served by them. And so Jesus comes as a great physician to heal the sick and as a teacher to teach them the truth. And he comes and he does all the teaching and all the miracles to show that he sees his people and he cares about their suffering. And he wants you to know that this morning, right now. Jesus wants you to know that he sees you, and he knows what you're suffering. You may come here to church, and you may put on a good smile, 
and you may pretend that everything's okay. And people ask, how's it going? Oh, it's going great. It's fine. And you're like, if they only knew. But Jesus knows. He sees you. He has paid the price to set you free from all that is holding you down. And he is with you in compassion by his Holy Spirit who is in you and who's come alongside you to be your counselor and your comforter in life. Jesus sees you and Jesus knows and Jesus cares. Verse 10, we've read a couple times now, God this is where God actually answers. So he prepares to answer in 7 through 9. Then he answers in verse 10, Now I will arise. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. The triple emphasis on now I'm going to act now. Verse 11 talks about our best efforts. <laughs> you conceive chaff and give birth to stubble. Your breath is a fire that will consume you. Basically, all of our best efforts only harm us. They don't actually help us. But then verse 12, when God acts, the peoples will be burned to lime. Like thorns cut down, they're burned in the fire. Can you imagine? Just imagine if you were in Jerusalem and you heard reports of the Assyrian army. And they've destroyed city after city after city. Fortified cities, walled cities, defended cities, cities with towers, cities with garrisons, stationed, destroyed, one after another after another. And the only one left is Jerusalem, and now you're in Jerusalem. And then you see on the hills, I've been in Jerusalem, and it, Jerusalem is on a hill, and it's surrounded by hills. And so when you, every direction, there's hills, right? And we're told ex earlier in Isaiah exactly where they were by the washer's field, by the upper pool. It's where the Rabshakeh came, and probably just beyond that, the Assyrian army. So you're seeing this Assyrian army spread out on the hills. Jerusalem's not on the highest hill in that area. The hills that surround it are actually a little bit higher. So, so these, these, this army really this multinational force of hundreds of thousands of people is surrounding you. This is, where, this is where they are. And then you go to sleep at night and you think, we're done for. We've done everything we can do. That we're so ridiculously outnumbered that you, you heard what the Rabshakeh said the Rabshakeh said he would give us 2,000 horses if we could find that many capable riders to get on them. He's laughing at us. He's mocking us. Two thousand, even if we had 2,000 horsemen, what would it be against their hundreds of thousands? We're done for. And you go to bed that night, and you wake up in the morning, and there's murmuring. There's excited laughing even, and you're thinking, what, what, what's happening? And some people who had the early morning watch are so stunned that they almost can't speak of what they've seen. You're not going to believe it. It, it. It's the most amazing thing. 
They're dead. What, what do you mean, they're dead? Who's dead? They are. Who's they? The Assyrians. What? How? Who attacked them? They're, they're dead. I'm just telling you, they're dead. All around, 185,000. Do you have any idea what 185,000 dead bodies along with horses even looks like? No, you don't. And this is the response. Listen, verse 13. Here, you who are far off, what I have done. And you who are near, acknowledge my might. And listen to this. This might be unexpected. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? There were unbelievers in Jerusalem, lots of them. They were the people who went to bed thinking it's all over. And they saw what everybody else saw. And now they're looking at that temple that they've been living in the shadow of their whole lives, and they're looking at it differently. The Lord, the one who lives there, he did that in one night? The Lord whose smoke and fire we see going up day and night, he did that? How are we supposed to live in the shadow of that kind of power? All of a sudden, the lights go on and they realize this God is real. He's so real that he wiped out the most powerful army in the world in a night and I live next door to him. What am I going to do? Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Don't just think this is Old Testament language, by the way. It's the book of Hebrews that tells us our God is a consuming fire. Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? And the answer is given in verse 15 and 16. He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, righteous conduct, righteous conversation, who despises the gain of oppressions, who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing bloodshed, who shuts his eyes at looking on evil, he will dwell in the heights. His place of defense will be the fortresses of rocks. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. Oh, okay. So a truly righteous man who's righteous in all of his conduct, in all of his conversation, who's not greedy at all, who hates evil, that's who can dwell with the holy God? Because that's not me. Ultimately, who is this? It's Jesus. Jesus is the righteous man. We see this righteous man portrayed in the Psalms, in Psalm 1, and Psalm 15, and Psalm 24, who can abide on the hill of the Lord? The one, the one. It's why it's in the singular. He who, the righteous man, can. Jesus is the righteous man. The good news is that by grace, through faith, you can be in Jesus and Jesus in you.
so that you are the righteous man. Not because of who you are, but because of who he is. And that's why we immediately go to verse 17. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty, because the king in his beauty is the righteous man. And if you're in him, you'll see him. Because he has washed away all of your sin. He has covered you with his perfect righteousness. He has made it so that you, yes, even you, can stand before the holy, holy, holy God as a dearly loved child. And the last part of this chapter really gives us the promise of what we will see and what we will inherit those who are in the righteous man. Your eyes will behold the king and his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. Your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? You will see no more the insolent people, the people of an obscure speech who you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot comprehend. So here the language in 18 and 19 is talking about these Assyrians. But, but the language here applies really to all of us who are in Christ ultimately because he's talking about Jerusalem being an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent, and to see the king in his beauty. And everything, all the problems you go through in this life, will be, you'll, you'll muse upon them. You're going to just like, do you remember when? It seems almost hard to remember, but do you remember when we weren't sure if we were going to make it? Do you remember when it was so hard that we cried ourselves to sleep at night? Do you remember that? It'll be a, a dream. Behold Zion, the city of our appointed feast. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent, whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there, listen, there the Lord in majesty will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams where no galley with oars can go, no majestic ship can pass. You can't get there by any human means. For the Lord is our judge. And here judge means like the book of judges, the one who delivers us from our enemy. The Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. I love this imagery in verse 23. Your cords hang loose. They cannot hold the mast firm in its place or keep the sail spread out. So he's painting a picture. It's, it's, we have to get the picture in our mind. So a beautiful place of wide rivers and streams, a place of abundant water. Water is life and refreshment, right? There's no man-made ship that can get there. Not, not the best sail, nothing. Nothing people do can get there. But you, even though your, your sailing ropes are so shot that they can't even keep your mast up or keep your sails tight. You ever feel that way? <laughs> where, where am I going? Which, yeah, even you. That messed up, that week, you're going to get there because God's going to bring you there. The prey and the spoil in abundance will be divided. Even the lame will take the prey. And no inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there, the people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. 
It's a beautiful picture. It's a picture that we can actually turn to the end of the Bible and read an even clearer portrayal of it. So as we prepare to close, just turn with me to Revelation 21. It's the same picture, different language, the same Jerusalem, the same king, the same promise of no more sickness and no more sin. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 7. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away Every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. That is where we all need to be in the end. All of our plans or ambitions for what we hope to accomplish in this life Whatever they may be, they can't compare to that. That's where we all need to be. And you can't buy your way there. You can't work your way there. You have to receive the righteous one who was exalted to pay for your sins and then exalted again to overcome death and then exalted again to give you a place in heaven with him. You have to trust him. Our Redeemer King, in his beauty, will bring us there, and we will see him there. And we will finally be home and truly satisfied in him there forever. If you're trusting him for that, if you know that's where you're going, and he's the one you're trusting, and you know that's the end of your story, right? If you're trusting him for that, and just say, to close, Trust him for every step along the way. Because if he can take you all the way there, he can take you through the next thing and the next thing and the next thing that you have to go through on your journey there. Let's pray. Father, you are good. Your son is beautiful and glorious. The home that you are preparing for us is the place we need to be. Help us to live with that mindset. Help us to live for that king. In Jesus' name, amen.